That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is Totally 80s. The podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So, turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host... Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment, and welcome to another episode of Totally 80s. We love hearing from you, so why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, or email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. So this is going to be a totally awesome episode of Totally 80s, because when I think of quintessential music of the 80s, the music I grew up with, the music that sounded like the future to me then and 40 years later still sounds like the future to me now, I think of synthesizers and I think of synth pop music. So today's discussion is all about that with the men who wrote the literal and figurative book on the subject. So first joining me is Richard Evans. Richard is the author of Listening to the Music the Machines Make, Inventing Electronic Pop, 1978 to 1983, which is almost about 500 pages long, and I pour it over every page. It tells the story of a single generation of post-punk musicians, mavericks, visionaries, and opportunists tinkering with primitive synthesizers in their bedrooms, bedsits, and basements in England. And doing that, they created a golden age of British pop and really some of the most enduring and influential records in pop history and certainly some of the most formative records of my young life. Please welcome to the show, Richard Evans. Thank you for joining me, Richard. It's a pleasure. Nice to be here. It's nice to have you. Thank you also for, of course, writing this book. There's so much to dive into. And thank you for bringing on one of those visionaries to the show. He really needs no introduction, but I'm going to introduce him anyway. Martin Ware is an English musician, composer, arranger, record producer, and music programmer, who listeners uh, to Totally 80s will probably best know as a founding member of two of the most iconic bands of this era, first Human League and then Heaven 17. Uh, The genre would probably not be the same without the human leagues being boiled alone. Martin also co-founded British Electric Foundation. He produced iconic records for Tina Turner, Terence Trent Darby, and Erasure, who's certainly going to come up in, in this discussion. And he hosts his own podcast, Electronically Yours, for future education after you listen to Totally 80s. So I'm excited to have him on my podcast. Please welcome to the show, Martin Ware. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So I'm just going to kind of dive right in, you know, because as I mentioned in the title, this book concentrates specifically on a, a very, in the big scheme of things, seems like a very narrow time frame, but a lot happened between 1978 and 1983. That was when music was in it. Synthesizer music was in its synthesis, so to speak. So I'll just open with kind of the broader question of what was it about this five-year period that was so fruitful and important that the book and what we're going to talk about this podcast, the three of us today, sort of narrows in on that. Basically, it came down to two records, and I knew that there was things that I wanted to talk about. And once I started 
deep diving into the research to sort of work out the timeline of everything, um, it seemed that the first record that it was important for me to talk about was the Normals TBOD Warm Leatherette, closely, closely followed by the Human Leagues being boiled. So, so those two records sort of came very close to each other and they felt like a really good place to start um, because although there had been, of course, electronic music before that, these kind of felt like the first electronic records that were of a new type. So they were very much a sort of post-punk, experimental, um, quite highfalutin uh, in, in some ways. And then at the other end of the spectrum, it's like um, by the time 1983 comes around, which is the, the end of the, the period that I write about, everything was electronic. It, it was... Mm-hmm. It started to get so difficult to sort of unravel what counted as an electronic record and what didn't count as an electronic record because the production techniques and the musicians uh, and the technology that was being used was so similar for everything. You know, it was like rock music and R&B music and soul uh, and, you know, everything had synthesizers just, you know, all over it, synthesizers and sequencers. And so I needed a record to sort of, to, to, that I wanted to finish on. Uh, and although this isn't the final record in the book, the most important record of that final section for me was New Order's Blue Monday. Interesting. And also a record they're still trying to recoup because the famous story is that Factory Records, which along with uh, the normals, Daniel Miller's out label Mute is one of the big labels that we'll we'll talk about today. Uh, the the it's not even urban legend. This is true. Like, wasn't it that like Blue Monday, the factory records spent too much money on the packaging is the short version of it. They did this like die cut packaging that and they lost money on every copy of Blue Monday. They sold it the 12 inch and then it became like the biggest selling 12 inch of all time. Whoops. But, you know, it's a good story. And we're still talking about the song now. So maybe it was a worthy investment. Absolutely. Yeah. And Blue Monday was important from my point of view because it was not only was it a fantastic, iconic piece of electronic music, but it also pointed in so many different directions to what was coming next. So it was kind of like it became a bridge between um, the things that had come before and the things that came next. So it sort of pointed a way towards hip hop and the very sort of the, the next sort of generation of electronic music coming out of America you know, house and techno and all of these things were all sort of not triggered by Blue Monday exactly, but Blue Monday was sort of very much a very important part of that transition. That was the span of music I wrote about. Well, I love the fact that you bookended it that way. So the book divides this this five-year period into three eras, Revolution, which is 78 to 79, Transition, which is 80 to 81, and Mainstream, which is 80 to 82. I want to start with part one, especially because, Martin, you were there at the forefront with uh, Bean Boyle, because the term post-punk, like many terms, gets thrown around a lot. But let's like take the term post-punk quite literally, because one point that stuck out to me in the book was that punk music, which had started and exploded just a few years earlier, was already getting old. And Martin, the music that you and your peers were making around this time, 1978, this was the new punk. This was yes. the ethos of punk that anyone could do it in their bedroom. So I would love to talk about, you know, when you were starting Human League and and that kind of mindset where people were looking for something newer and cooler. Punk was already still. Well, it's interesting because I look back on it now and at the time we thought we were electro punk essentially 
but punk was just the trigger. It wasn't the template for us. We actually performed on a couple of bills in our early days with some real punk bands, and they were terrible. <laughs> I mean, and actually that, that gave us the encouragement to think, well, look, we might be just as bad as them, but we're not just uh, using the same tools that every pub band had used or, you know, kind of failed rock and roll working men's club band had done for all this time. And it just kind of coincided. A lot of things, a lot of planets came into alignment. Cheaper and affordable synthesizers were coming onto the market. And I remember going to a music store in, uh, there weren't many of them in Sheffield, but there was one called The Inspiring Title of Musical Sounds. Basically, it was just the, the shop assistants were all kind of long-haired. All they wanted to do was to show you that they could play some Led Zeppelin on their uh, guitars. And obviously, somebody at the top of the uh, management said, look, we've got to be able to sell synthesizers because we can't just carry on just selling. So anyway, they had a couple of synthesizers in there. And one of them was the first, first synth that I used to create being boiled, which was the Cork 700S. And that was about 350 quid at the time, which is, you know, we had to buy it on, on, in installments, you know, because we didn't have very much money. But it was the first time we could imagine having grown up with people like Kraftwerk, Eno especially, but also loving glam and the American influence of the kind of New York bands. Blondie were even using synthesizers. Always wanted to look to create something futuristic. For the first time, you could buy an instrument, even in a basic, basic way that could, that could, you could, you could write song structures on it. So there was actually, and the other key point is, about a year before we formed the Human League, there was an article in, in New Musical Express, which was, a, you know, the most popular paper, uh, music paper in Britain at that time. And they were kind of taste leaders and there was a double page article with brian eno the article said rock and roll is dead it's old-fashioned don't need guitars anymore all you need is a microphone and not even drum machines at that time right all you need is a microphone synthesizer and a tape machine and so we took we literally took him at his word we went and bought a tape machine both myself and Ian, he had a Roland System 100, which was a bit more sophisticated, but he bought that. I bought the monophonic Korg, and we had a tape machine and a microphone, and that was it. So we liked, you know, kind of sugar, sugar, as much as we liked Zanakis, experimental computer music, you know, and disco as well, mm -hmm. right? So, and we were going to nightclubs, popular nightclubs in Sheffield and dancing our asses off, you know. And we wanted to do something that were even in the most crude way imaginable, reminded us a bit of, in this instance, with being boiled, Parliament Funkadelic yeah. were, the, were the inspiration. So Bernie Worrell, that kind of slightly funky, we were all big soul fans anyway. So that slightly funky, we're not trained musicians, right? So this is our version of funky. But actually, when you shoot for the target and miss, that's where the interesting stuff is. So we just basically recorded one instrument at a time, bouncing from track to track on a stereo tape machine, and then 
got Phil in, asked him to write some lyrics, came back with, you know, listen to the voice of Buddha saying stop your sericulture. And we're going, whoa, what the hell is that all about? And um, he got the job, essentially, within 30 seconds of him doing his audition. It's funny because when I'm talking about this sort of rapid changing of the old and new guard with punk making way for post-punk and for synth music, and you mentioned the NMA and your musical express, didn't John Lydon, and I actually learned this from your book, Richard, John Lydon, because the enemy used to have like people do guest reviews, celebrities do guest reviews, he gave a bad review to Bean Boyle, did he not? Oh, he was just being an asshole. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I became friends with John later and I actually recorded with him. But um, two-word review, trendy hippies, he said. I don't think he actually listened to the record. <laughs> I've talked to him about it. He denies it, but I don't think he listened to the record. He just saw the lyrics and went, oh, what's all this sericulture stuff, you know. It's so interesting how rapidly things were changing. We're like, you know, just a couple of years earlier, like, you know, it was like this was the new revolution. And there was yet another one coming in. You mentioned Brian Eno, obviously, and glam rock did like all kind of in the introduction to the book from pre-78. I kind of get the idea that kind of all roads led back to a handful of artists that influenced your generation of synth pop. And it was it was Brian Eno. And Kraftwerk, who you also mentioned, but obviously David Bowie and maybe Giorgio Moroder was that kind of the holy yeah. quartet. And uh, Bowie and you know any kind of electronic musicians really, not really going as far as Tangerine Dream or stuff like that. For me, that was a bit hippie. Uh, <laughs> although looking back on it now, I quite like it. But you know, Kraftwerk were hippies. Mm. Their first couple of albums were like. They were long hairs. It's hard to believe, but they were. They had bloody jazz flutes on them, and they were really gentle and kind of, you know, and it's only really when it turned around with um, Autobahn, really, I think, or radioactivity, when things started really pulling into focus for us. Well, one of the reasons I bring up Bowie, I mean, obviously Bowie is a very you know so many roads lead back to bowie you know and and of course the top of the pop starman performance and stuff but i was very interested to read in in richard's book that um he was at an early human league gig and this may have kind of influenced his scary monsters era in which he was definitely influenced by bands that were playing at the blitz and and kind of got on board with that but can you tell me about how he ended up at, at your show and and you spoke we were about to go on stage at a, basically a pub gig in uh, Earl's Court in London. Probably only held about two or three hundred people, and it was it was uh, pretty grim. I mean, the dressing room had no door on it, and it smelled like those kind of gigs used to smell, which is basically beer and wee wee. So, and and floor to ceiling graffiti on the walls. So anyway, no doors on the dressing room. We're about to go on stage. Back quarter of an hour before we were due to go on stage, who walks in but David Bowie, unannounced, with an entourage of about eight people. Uh, but various other people, I have no idea who they were. <laughs> and fortunately, because, of course, everybody's got smartphones now and you know we're all taking photos of everything all the time. Fortunately, somebody took a photo of it. So I knew it, I knew I didn't imagine it. That actually exists in my photo library. And me talking to Bowie. It's incredible. 
So he just said, I can't do an impersonation of Burger. Um, <laughs> oh, Martin. No, no, that's not it. Uh, <laughs> that's Glenn Mackler. Um, <laughs> no, um, he was very complimentary and he said, I'm really looking forward to seeing you. But I've got an even better story. I don't know if it's in the book, Richard, but I found out about six months ago that we did a gig a few weeks earlier than that at the Marquee Club, which was sold out. Lots of people turned up, tried to get in because there were no tickets left. Two of the people who turned up were Bowie and Iggy Pop, and the bouncer wouldn't let them in. What? Yeah. Do you not recognise them? I don't know. They're pretty stupid, uh, to be honest. <laughs> well, it was probably about 25% over fire limit anyway. So that's why he ended up going to this little tiny tiny gig in earl's court iggy wasn't there unfortunately but we, we did go on to tour with iggy which was amazing the following week he, he was in enemy and said i'll just been see the human league there's a future of music which is very nice of him i might be mixing up my narratives very slightly but i have a feeling that gary newman was also at that gig was he gary newman was a huge bowie fan and I can remember reading something that Gary Newman had written about how he'd gone. I think it was the Nashville. So it sort of... It, oh, it was it, Nashville, that's right, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it connects with this story. But he was at the back of the room and Bowie came in uh, and Gary Newman was delighted that he was able to lean over and touch David Bowie's hair. <laughs> wow, you made that happen. The Human League made that happen. Well, I'm glad that you brought up Gary Newman, Richard, because obviously I have, you know... Uh, I. I'm in America, obviously, and it kind of really peeves me that certain artists, Gary Newman being one of them, is considered a one-hit wonder here because of Cars was massive, but he did not have any other hits here. He's had quite a renaissance here. He tours here a lot. He does very well, but like he really only had one hit here. And obviously, that annoys me because he's so important. He's so prominent in your book. So you mentioned that Being Boiled was a really massive song that kind of like exploded this music in Britain but you know I'd love to talk about Gary was there at the forefront too and you definitely talk about our friends electric and down in the park and obviously we're talking about that transition from punk to synth music and he started off as a full-on punk and kind of was one of the first people to be like this is old hat let's move on so can you talk a little bit about the importance of Gary in this scene. Absolutely. I mean, Gary Newman was was originally signed as part of Tubeway Army, um, and they were signed to Beggar's Banquet as a punk band. There was no electronic leanings from, from, from Gary Newman or from the band at that time at all. Um, but at the same time, he was savvy enough to know that punk wasn't going to last. He was young enough because he was like that sort of slight post-punk generation he was starting to feel that the, the punk rock was a little bit hackneyed, a little bit old fashioned, kind of just rock music sort of sped up with a bit more aggression. Uh, and he knew that something else was going to be coming along. He didn't know what it was. He knew, also knew that if he was a punk band, he had a more better chance of getting signed because at that point, all the record companies were desperate for punk bands because punk was the new big thing. Uh, and obviously in that sort of cyclical music industry way, they were a little bit behind the curve. Um, but Gary Newman, you know, like I say, he, he knew that that was a way to get his foot on the first rung of the ladder. And then he became electronic because he he started recording his first album with Tubai Army. And they were at a little studio in Cambridge called uh, Spacewood, I think it was called. 
they were just in the studio that they'd been allocated and someone had left behind a little Moog synthesizer. Gary Newman just started playing with it. And he said, it's, it's incredible that it just happened to be set to this incredibly bassy, powerful noise. And he just came along and pressed the key and it made the room shake. Uh, and, and that was his sort of, you know, epiphany. And he, he went away from that session uh, and he reworked an entire album's worth of material to sort of bring in a level of electronic sort of, you know, additions. And they went back and did another session to add this electronic to it. That was the, the start of, yeah, one of the most important success stories in, in early electronic music. He, t- he told that story that you just told, Richard, and he said... Um... He freely admitted he, 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 he wasn't necessarily a very nice person at that point, but he became almost, you know, a kind of religiously obsessed with the idea of this mission he was on. And he turned around and he, he was almost like the rest of the band didn't necessarily fit, you know. So he's just started deconstructing everything and reconstructing it in a different way. But, you know, like people who are just so kind of focused on, doing one, you know, they're like, oh, I think he's a little bit OCD, actually, a little bit kind of maybe on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. But uh, that, I think sometimes you need that as a creative force to get to push through those barriers. I found that really interesting. Um, I was never that, I could never be that brutal, really. Uh, <laughs> Cars was a big song here, Cars by Gary Newman, and that was, you know, a roller rink, you know, classic. It was I believe a top 10 song here, I believe. But I would say, from my point of view, the commercial tipping point here came around 1981, 1982 with a pair of songs that were really big here. One was another band that do not get me started. I get so mad or considered a one-hit wonder in America. Soft Cell, Tain of Love. Like, that was, don't even get me started on how we will we'll, we will get started. We will talk about top, Soft Cell. But it really bums me out that they are considered a one-hit wonder because that song was so massive here, a song they didn't even write. And they did not have other hits here. And the other one was, you know, a Human League song from Martin After You Were No Longer in the band when they kind of became a whole other thing, which was Don't You Want Me. Those songs, from my recollection, were on the radio here in America, at least in L.A., where I grew up, very close together. And I actually even remember DJs kind of at that time saying, like, in that kind of hokey way, like, this is the new stuff, synthesizers are going to be big. I remember making an impression on me that these two songs were really big hits um, at the same time. And again, it was different in England, obviously. There were a lot of songs in Richard's book that we talk about that didn't even make a mark here. But, Rich, I'd love for you to talk about, am I right in remembering that these were two very important songs on my side of the pond? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's like, um, for, for, for whatever reason... And you can probably answer this question better than I can. The English electronic music resonated so completely and massively with a certain strata of the American teenage audience. Girls, young girls. Young girls to to an extent. But I think that there was also something to do with the aesthetics of the way that British musicians presented themselves. Um, And although this wasn't intended at the time, that instantly fed into MTV. Absolutely, MTV and Duran Duran, of course, who were one, and Depeche Mode, who were like the the two biggest yeah. bands in America that probably come out of the time. Uh, interestingly, Soft Cell, I think they were just a little too early and they 
did yeah. not get a lot of play on MTV. Don't You Want Me certainly did. And, you know, Steve Barron. So, yeah, of course, it could be argued that bands that look good in pinups look good to young girls. Visuals were very important. And I think the bands that became stars out of this movement, like Heaven 17, like Human League, like Depeche Mode, Duran Duran, Soft Cell, they had an image that looked like the future to go with the sounds that sounded like the future. Can either of you speak to that? I'd like to mention um, a conversation I had with uh, Niall Rogers, which relates to this, which is when he started Chic, he'd been told about this band called Rocks Music who were playing their first gig in, in New York, and, and uh, he couldn't believe. It's the, he said it's the first time he'd ever been to a gig where the audience dressed up more than the band. <laughs> And that's why she turned into this, you know, style iconography visually, and they decided to make that part of the thing. I think that's like the prototype for like the new romantic movement, where the the audience felt like they were part of what's happening on the stage, almost like on an equal basis in a strange sort of way. You know, just kids coming from the suburbs outside London could turn up at the Blitz Club, dressed up to the nines. And stand more chance of getting in than like somebody like me who wouldn't dress up and couldn't convince the bouncer that I was actually in a band that was creating this music, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I blame Rusty Egan personally, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and Steve Strange, you know, God bless him. Well, I, I'm, you know, Visage, obviously, which had Rusty and Steve Strange in it and Midjure, who I think a lot of people in America don't, I think a lot of people in America don't even realize how much Midjure did. They don't know about Visage. That he was in Thin Lizzy. They might not even know that he pretty much played every instrument on the Band-Aid Do They Know It's Christmas song that he co-wrote. But Visage was basically a synth-pop supergroup. Look at all the people. Again, not a band that really did, made a lot of a mark commercially in America. But, I mean, I remember the Fade to Grey video. And fun fact, go on YouTube Violet Chotsky, winner of RuPaul's Drag Race season seven, covered Fade to Grey on her YouTube channel. And in the most recent soft sell video, I believe it's a soft sell video, she plays Mark Allman. <laughs> you know, Brilliant. dressing up is still a thing that's connected yeah, to this. Well, Martin, I wanted to ask you, I mean, obviously I could, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about this. I was mentioning the huge success of Don't You Want Me and the whole Dare album. And obviously, after you and Ian left the first version of Human League, you went on, you had kind of a similar thing where you ripped it up and started again and started another band, and in your case, Heaven 17, that, you know, had success as well. But, you know, how did it feel when Phil went on and did this kind of new version of Human League and had a, a lot of commercial success in America? I would say, firstly, you were talking about one-hit wonders earlier. I would have loved to have been a one-hit wonder in America. There were no hit wonders in America. Really? Uh, Let Me Go and Penthouse to Pavement were not hits here? It was a number one record in the in the dance, in the the dance Billboard dance charts, I think. So uh, that's fine. But um, secondly, the funny story about Dare is that uh, part of the settlement that we came to with the original Human League for them to keep the name is that we got uh, myself and Ian both got one percent on the next album, which was Dare. So boom, that bought our first flat in uh, in in London, 
I even managed to persuade the record company to give us some silver and platinum and gold records with my mum and dad's name on, which is great because it was big. Well, well done because for people, for younger listeners who are listening, 1% probably doesn't sound like a lot, but back then people actually bought albums. So 1% was probably a pretty penny. Oh, yeah, 1% of retail on, I don't know, probably sold 8 and 9 million records. So anyway, I, I can't do them, but it's a lot. Nicely done, nicely done. But at the time when Union went off and did Heaven 17, and then, you know, uh, Phil continued on with uh, Joanne and Susan and a very different version of uh, Human League, were there two kind of warring camps within your fan base, like sellout, second version, and, oh, I like the old stuff better, I like Heaven 17 better? Was that kind of rivalry within your fan base? Phil happens all the time <laughs> really it's unbelievable i mean i keep saying you know come on we're, we're like nearly 40 years on but there's still it's still quite a fierce tribal thing you know people thank god still really like the first two human league albums as being probably quite influential and seminal and then then it comes with the split you end up with some people who are fiercely anti-Heaven 17, and then some people who are fiercely anti-Humanly Mark II. And the kids still keep arguing online. I really can't dig it. I think it's stupid, personally. I, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I like I like them both. I like them both. I don't take sides. I'm neutral. I'm Switzerland. Yeah, Dare is a fantastic album. I'd have to argue that I don't think a lot of their following albums were quite up to that, that standard, but you know, everybody's got their time. It's fine. I think also Virgin Records, who were the record label for the Human League and for Heaven 17 at that point, I think they were partly responsible for this because, and this is something that I pointed out to Martin when I saw him quite recently, it's like it seemed that they always pitched the two bands at the same time. So it's like every time a new Heaven 17 single was coming out, then it would be roughly at the same time as a new Human League single, you know. So I think that they were very aware of what they were doing, and I think they were very deliberately sort of creating this sort of dichotomy. They need to stand up and be counted as as a response. They were trying to make it like blur in a way since mm. later. Exactly that. <laughs> well, this conversation. I mean, I don't even know what year we're at. We're we're still probably in the transition era of nineteen eighty 1980 to nineteen eighty one. But as I mentioned in this book, listening to the music the machines make. Is 507 pages long. That's not even counting the index. That's more pages. So we have a lot more to discuss and we've run out of time. Would I be able to convince you, Richard and Martin, to come back for a part two episode of Totally 80s? Yeah, I'd love to come back. It would be a pleasure. Awesome. I'm so excited. There's so much more to discuss. We will be back. In the meantime, a very special thanks to the author of Listening to the Music the Machines Make, Richard Evans, and to legendary machine music maker Martin Ware for joining me today. Thanks, everybody out there listening. Remember to give Totally 80s some love with a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform. And I'll be back for part two with Martin Ware and Richard Evans on Totally 80s. Catch you next time. This was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally80s. And please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you.
catch you on the flip side. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.